Welcome to Outside the Tank, the first podcast in the world that interviews the entrepreneurs featured on Shark Tank. We get the inside scoop on how they got there, what lessons they learned, their biggest regrets, what didn't air on TV, what has happened to them since, and so much more. Prepare to be informed, inspired, and entertained. Welcome to an all-new episode of Outside the Tank. Welcome to an all-new episode of Outside the Tank. I'm Tom. I'm Joe. And we're talking with Justin Crandall of Robin Autopilot Lawn Mowing Service. Very so, interesting. So this is this is like uh, Uber, right? Every <laughs> everyone compares everything to Uber, right? Right. But this is this is like Uber for lawn care. Correct. And, and if you have these <laughs> autopilot uh, mowers out there mowing, they're better than you or I out there doing it ourselves. Right. Or maybe hiring someone who doesn't show up. The it, robots always show up. So this was Season 9, Episode 10, uh, air date of November 12th, 2017. Justin comes in asking half a million dollars for 5%, which is a $10 million valuation. Now, Justin's a sharp dude. He's a Harvard MBA. That's a... It's a really good school, Harvard. Is it? Okay. And an MBA is it, it's an advanced business degree. Ah, okay. okay. So wanted to explain. Yeah, I that barely to you. got through high school. I you high know, school was the toughest seven years of my life, by the way. Okay. All right. <laughs> good good joke. Um, the other comparison that was made was Rumba, which is like the uh, automatic uh, vacuum cleaner inside a home. Yeah. Imagine a Rumba for grass cutting. And so they were buying these robots in Europe. So we have a rumba at home. I could just put that out on my lawn. Is that what you're saying? You don't have a lawn. Okay. I have rocks. Rocks and dirt right now. <laughs> so they're at the time of airing, they were charging $17 a week um, for like the baseline cutting, which sounds pretty cheap. Yeah. And then there was 25 or 37 if they wanted some extra stuff. And there were in-person crews. So it wasn't like this thing flew to your house and cut the lawn. But there were still in-person crews that were doing it. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, helping to make sure everything went yeah. well. Got to program them. Exactly. But obviously, you don't see anything like this out there. Very, very innovative. Um, he had raised over $3 million um, in the year prior to airing, had lost over a million and had a burn rate of $100,000 per month. Right. So high stakes here. Yeah. Uh, it's very innovative. It's very disruptive. It's not like anything you've seen, but there's a lot of hardware. There's a lot of moving pieces to this business. Yes. So certainly a little higher valuation and a little more complexity than your average business that goes into Shark Tank. How was it received? It, uh, you know, there were no, I will tell you, there were no takers. Uh, very interesting responses um, by the Sharks to the uh, product and service. Uh, Cuban thought it was a really expensive business with uh, a long horizon, and he just couldn't get into it. Uh, Cuban didn't see it. Lori liked the product. She didn't necessarily, necessarily like the service side of the business. And so Richard, Richard Branson could not get to the valuation. He was just not uh, seeing it. And Robert was looking for a tipping point. 
um, and the burn rate, you know, kept coming up. The burn rate was a challenge to Damon. Also, he, he said, I, I just can't imagine losing over a million dollars a year. So there were no takers. <laughs> when it's interesting because there's a product and there's a service and you can't perform the service unless you use the product. Right. So again, a little more complexity to it. Um, let's get into our interview with Justin. Yeah. Covered a lot of ground. There's more to this story. Way more to this story. <laughs> and then on the back end, we'll uh, give our post game and some of the things we learned from uh, this great entrepreneur. So enjoy our interview with Justin. All right, we're here with Justin Crandall, who appeared on season nine, episode ten of Shark Tank with Robin, which was. Uh, my description being the rumba of uh, grass cutting. Uh, <laughs> uh, so tell us, you know, start at the beginning of the story in terms of how you came across this piece of technology, how you started doing Uber for lawn care, how that transitioned. Just really curious how the whole business concept came to be and, and what year that was. Yeah, so we started Robin in uh, 2015, you know, and at the time, obviously, you had Uber and Lyft who were doing extremely well, growing very quickly. Uh, and then in home cleaning services, you had uh, folks like HomeJoy um, that were out there raising tons of money and, and taking this super highly fragmented market of home cleaning services uh, and, and really kind of applying technology to them. And, you know, my co-founders and I were looking at other spaces and saying, all right, where else does this whole idea apply? And we look at lawn care. You know, lawn care is a 80 plus billion dollar market that is made up primarily of three guys in a truck type of operators. You know, you have, you have some commercial guys that are doing million dollar plus um, but commercial is really only about a third of the market. Two thirds of the market is, um, you know, in this residential space, which is all these mom and pops. And so we're like, well, you know, there's an opportunity here to consolidate this market, to create some efficiencies. And so, you know, we took the concept of Uber, right? You put in an address, we could instantly give you a quote because we already knew your property size and information. Um, we could schedule a crew, you know, instantly that, that would, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a guy sitting in a truck ready to run over with his lawnmower, but we, we had crews that were operating in neighborhoods every day. And so we knew the schedule for that neighborhood. So we could put you on the schedule for Tuesday or Friday. And then we handled all the payments via credit cards, which I think lawn care is maybe one of the very last spaces where people still write checks. Right. And I literally don't even know where my checkbook is anymore, but, but lawn care services still take them. And so that was kind of where we started. And we spent, we spent two years building that business on a pretty small amount of capital. But by our second year in business, we had over 10,000 lawn mowing customers just in three cities. And, you know, we'd grown to a three plus million dollar run rate in two years. Felt like we had something that was pretty good. The margins were thin, just like, Uber's margins are 15 to 20%. Our margins were 15 to 20%, which means you need a lot of capital at the top of the funnel in order to acquire those customers and build something that's massive to make that 15% turn into something big. And by the time we went to Sand Hill Road and started trying to raise money, nobody wanted to t touch an Uber with a 10 foot pole, right? HomeJoy had imploded. Um, every business that had tried to Uberfy something else had done extremely poorly. 
And so nobody was, even though they were impressed by the growth that we'd done on limited capital, nobody was interested in that. And so, you know, we were looking at that and then, and to be fair, those investors were not dumb. It's extremely challenging business. And when you're operating with low margins, every mistake gets magnified. And so one of the things we figured out was we started a lawn care business in Texas Texas had been in a 10-year drought, and the year we started it was one of the two wettest seasons in history in Texas, which sounds great because it makes grass grow, but what you realize is you're running an outdoor factory, and essentially you have a certain amount of throughput you need to get through every day, and when it rains, you can't run a night shift, right? You can't, like, make it up, and so you just fall behind, and so every time it rains, you just have this massive problem. Um, the other thing we, we realized is like these crews, most of them were, were you know, pretty good, but as soon as something happened, they would just stop communicating, right? Somebody who'd been reliable for months would just suddenly stop showing up for the job and not communicate with us. And so we were sitting there going, we had pretty good reviews. We had pretty high customer satisfaction. Our customer retention was actually really high, but at the same time, it wasn't a great business at that point. And, you know, we're sitting there trying to figure out, all right, how are we going to fix this? And my co-founder ran across an article about these robotic lawnmowers. Uh, and I remember he shared it with me and I'm just like, Bart, I don't need a problem 10 years, uh, a solution to a problem 10 years from now. I need one today. Right. And he's like, well, they've actually already sold a million of these in Europe. And my eyes were just like, what? <laughs> robotic lawnmowers, they've sold a million of them in Europe. And so we're just like, all right, let's get one of these things and see how it works. And that was, we installed the first one at his house. We still have, you know, the photos and videos of that first install. And it was an extreme pain. The first time you do it, it's really confusing. Um, sidewalks, driveways, fenced in backyards, there's all these unique challenges. But at the same time, we're like, they don't care if it rains, the robots will still mow if it rains. Um, you don't have any problems with them not showing up and not communicating because they just live on site and do the mowing. And, and so anyway, that was kind of the epiphany for us is like, oh my goodness, this is, this is the future, right? Especially with labor rates going up in the U S and, you know, it, it just seemed like, um, where things were headed and we had an opportunity to drive that. Uh, and so we, we ended up actually selling the Uber type model to uh, porch who recently went public um, via SPAC, we sold that business to them to generate enough capital to fund our, um, our shift into this robotic mowing business. So you sold the, you know, Uber lawn care business set part of things you got. Yep. Okay. And then and, and who acquired that? That was porch. And are they a similar business on a larger scale? I've never heard of them. Porch, so Porch it helps homeowners find all the different home services that they need. So it's think of it more like a marketplace where they're matching you up with vetted providers for plumbing, for mowing, for cleaning, you name it. You know, they, they have um, providers in that category. Similar to an Angie's list. Uh, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. In many ways. Yes. There's definitely some similarities there. Um, and, and, you know, they've been very successful. They've been around for probably 10 years, but they just IPO'd 
within the last two months um, via one of those, the, the, the new thing on Wall Street, right? The SPACs that are already public and just come in and acquire the company to take them public. Um, so they just went public a couple months ago and, you know, they've done very well. I don't know that the Uber mowing part of their business has done all that well. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, that wasn't the core of the business that they pitched to Wall Street. Let's say that. Was, was there, do you know what their intent was uh, with the business when they bought it from you? Were they trying to scale that across the country? Yep. Yeah. So they were going to scale it up. They were going to take it nationwide and they did add a ton of cities. Um, they figured out how to drive some cost out of what we were doing, you know, did some very smart things from that standpoint, the challenges, they were still running into the same challenges we were though, which is, you know, weather plays such a huge factor in this. Um, and then, you know, you don't think of mowing as being an overly skilled trade. I mean, you know, you mow it and you edge it, right? It doesn't seem like it would be that challenge, but it is a much more complex operationally than having people drive a car from one location to another, right? Like getting the mowing height right, different grasses, how you edge. There's all kinds of factors that are just a little bit different with that business that make it a little bit more challenging to operate. Well, my, my grandfather loved me more than anything in this world, but I, I think at one point he fired me because I wasn't very good at cutting his lawn. <laughs> so I, and, 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 you know, it's, it's not easy. That's the moral of the story. He, he didn't love me enough that uh, he liked his edges yeah. looking like that. So well, the other thing that, the other thing that Uber's done that is unique is that, so we were, we were relying on existing landscapers to, to actually execute, right? The thing that Uber has done that's unique is that they created supply where it didn't exist, right? They got a guy with a car who normally would be doing something else to then use that car to become a chauffeur, a taxi driver. We had the same idea. In fact, we had a 17-year-old kid in McKinney, Texas, and his brother who were amazing. Like our customers loved them, you know, and they showed up, they were diligent. We're like, we just got to find a bunch of these kids that want to get out there and work. And it turned it turned to be just incredibly challenging to find folks like that that wanted to start a lawn care like a little lawn care business. Even though we could feed them jobs all day, they just didn't want to do it. And maybe that's the hundred degree humid heat of Texas, but but I don't think it was any easier anywhere else in the country. Well, it sounds stupid, but it's you know an, an Uber driver has driven their own vehicle for thousands of hours, so there's not much of a learning curve other than a stupid app, and they may already know the town well enough to be able to get around without directions. So what you're saying is, you know, it, it, they, there is a learning curve to it. So I, I want to ask you one more question about that the Uber business. Cause there's still people that everyone, you know, will tell you, Oh, we're going to be the Uber of this or the Uber of that. And they think that's a good thing. But what you're saying is no, that's actually can be really troublesome. So why is it tough to try to be the Uber of something else? So I think, I think there's a lot of factors and every industry is going to be a little bit different, but maybe the biggest one is that the margins are really thin and your value add is not that great in most cases, right? So you're basically stepping between a consumer and the provider they would have chosen before and trying to add some convenience or benefits. So on the customer side, it's you can pay with a credit card, there's scheduling, we manage the communication. So you know if something goes wrong, we've got backup crews to take care of you. On the provider side, it's, hey, your schedule is not full or you're driving all over town, we can get you there. So there are benefits, but when you start going, well, 
I'm not going to be able to charge a 50% premium or a hundred percent premium. The customer expects to pay about the same, right? Maybe a few dollars more. The provider is maybe willing to take a few dollars less, but you're talking about a really thin margin that you're cutting from an existing transaction. And I think that just makes it really hard because you haven't created something that's totally new that they can't get somewhere else. And, and it's definitely not a software margin business. So it requires a ton of capital to achieve scale. And, and then even at scale, it's not certain that the retention rates are going to be high enough to make it worth it. I mean, it's like, you know, even Uber is not turning a profit yet, right? Now, some of that's because they're still investing in growth, but still they're having to pay to retain drivers. They're paying a ton of money or at least to handle the net churn of drivers, so you sell that portion of the business and then I'm assuming we're then focused on the device, right? The actual, um, electronic device that would go around the, the, um, the yard. So then what, what were you doing with that? What did that look like? So, and really for, for a brief period of time, we ran both because we wanted to make sure we weren't crazy about how this robotic mowing business was. And, you know, and we never produced our own robots because, you know, we looked at it and said, there are brands, it's amazing, but like Husqvarna and Robomo had been producing robotic mowers for 25 years. It literally 25 years. In fact, they even sold them in the United States back in 99 for a brief period of time. And they, they ended up closing that at one point cause they ran out of money and there were some other things going on, but in Europe, they, they'd been, they'd sold over a million of them. They'd been around for 25 years and we we're like, well, you know, this isn't, this isn't easy technology. Husqvarna has a ton of patents around it. There's really no reason for us to reinvent the wheel on the product. What we realized was different though. In Europe, it's a product sale. Right. And in, in, in just for comparison. So so the labor markets are so different in Europe. If you made well in the U.S., if you made a million dollars a year, you probably have a lawn service. Right. In Europe, if you made a million dollars a year, you probably have a lawn service. But in the U.S., if you make one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, you probably have a lawn service. And in Europe, you mow your own lawn because there's not some guy that will come around and mow your lawn for twenty five bucks. It just doesn't exist there like that. And so when you buy a two or $3,000 machine to mow your lawn, what you're really doing is buying your Saturday back, right? Which is valuable to, to many people. Whereas in the U S what you're doing is you're prepaying for three years of lawn care. And now you're out in the lawn doing the edging and trimming and weeding and all the other stuff that your lawn guy used to do for you. Right? And so we looked at it and said, this isn't a product market. This is a service market. And so what we figured out is, hey, if we take these robots and we install them and we maintain them, and then we still send a one-man crew to do the edging, trimming, weeding, all the other lawn stuff, you can package it up. And actually, our costs are lower than the traditional lawn guy, and our margins are higher because we can charge a little bit of a premium. And so we tested that theory in Dallas and... You know, within a year, within a first summer, um, we had already installed over 200 of these robotic mowers, which got the attention of the manufacturers because the entire U.S. market for robotic lawnmowers at the time was about a thousand a year, and we bought 200 of them. Right, and so they're like, "All right, what's going on here?" So literally, every manu major manufacturer was sending their R and D and marketing and, and product teams down to Dallas to meet with us, trying to figure out what are these guys doing? 
you know, and, and, you know, is there something we can replicate within this? And, and, you know, and obviously we were trying to negotiate for supplier agreements and, and making sure we had the best technology for our customers for, from a reliability standpoint. And so, you know, we'd gotten to, we'd done, I don't know how many it was, but actually that was all, that all kind of happened after we went uh, in the TechCrunch tech Disrupt, we were invited to pitch in the battlefield one year. And so we got to go do that experience. And then the summer after that is when we really started growing. So you, the, the Shark Tank episode aired November of 2017. What yep. were the first couple days like following the episode airing? And then what, what's happened since? So it's interesting, but you know, you film, I think in our case, we film, well, we filmed on Father's Day. I remember because we were actually in LA on Father's Day, my co-founder and I. And so it didn't air till like November. So you have kind of five months to think about it. And in that, during that five months, one of the things we were thinking about was, all right, this is going well in Dallas. How are we going to scale this nationwide? Like it was our belief, this is going to grow quickly. How are we going to get nationwide before other people start copying what we're doing and trying to grow? And so, you know, and, and we were faced with that same challenge of growth requires capital, especially in this case where you're talking about buying thousands and thousands of machines at $1,500 to $2,500 each. Uh, marketing costs, operational costs, all those types of things for each market. And we realized like, well, we're not far enough along that somebody's going to give us 10, $20 million at this point. So how do we capitalize on this and how do we grow it? And so we'd actually made the decision to franchise the business. So we had gotten all our, you know, there's a whole process you go through with franchising. And, and I have to say like, you know, I have an MBA. I've studied business for a long time. I've thought a lot about financing. And I have to say, I never really thought about franchising as a financing tool, but it's absolutely what it is, right? Because you go from, I need to raise money to grow to every new market I grow into pays me. They give me money to grow, but also they invest in marketing. They invest in inventory. They invest in you know human labor, like the folks who are actually going to execute the service. It all is on the franchisee. Now they get a ton of upside from that, right? And, and you know the chance to build their own business. Um, but from a franchisor standpoint, it's a great way to scale as long as you're not don't, not going for VC returns. And you can come back to that. But but anyway, so we had made the decision we're going to franchise this because that's the best way for us to grow. And so we were not thinking that when we pitched in the tank and, but on the day that it aired, our primary focus was around selling franchises and growing our franchise network so that we could scale this thing. And from that standpoint, it was, I mean, you know, just the, you've obviously already heard all the stories, like the volume of traffic to your website and all the preparation you do to make sure it doesn't crash and the number of leads. I think, I think on that first airing, I'm trying to remember the numbers now, but I want to say we got something like 800 franchise leads on, on that, uh, you know, on that night. Right? Wow. You, didn't even, you didn't even mention franchising as part of your nope. business model. But everybody who went to our website, there was a big giant button that said own a franchise, right? It was like, we made very, very clear that that's where we were at. And so well, I, I've got to ask you at the at, uh, time of taping, Obviously, there was a substantial burn rate going on, and yep. that kind of burned a hole in um, in the the minds of uh, several of the sharks. They were you're talking about this long horizon, and they kept coming back to the 
lack of profitability. So we're uh, franchising as a funding mechanism. I love, I became very interested when you said that, because that's very, that's brilliant. Instead of going into a market and having to figure out how to raise and throw more money at the problem, you're receiving a premium. What was the genesis of that idea? How did that idea quickly germinate after the taping? So I think there, there were two parts to it. One was financing and the other part was the operational complexity, right? It's, it's still not a case of you just drop the mower down and it does its thing. Like you need to understand how to install it, how to handle sidewalks and driveways. And, and then we patented a solution to go through the fences, but it still requires some training. And, and so I think Cuban was the one, one of his concerns was around that, um, that operational piece. Managing this kind of business is very different than managing a software business. And, and, and the margins are much lower. And he's right. right. It just is a more challenging business. And so, you know, franchising to us was a way of solving both those problems. It's financing because, yes, we were, you know, we were doing okay financially and we had some investors who liked the direction we were heading in. And so we could have raised a bit more money from our, our kind of angel network um, but the, the complexity of operations means I want to have an owner operator. I don't want to have a guy that I'm paying a few bucks living, you know, living someplace a hundred miles from me and trusting that he's going out and, and really treating customers the way I need them to be treated because the execution is not that simple. And a franchise owner, if you get the right ones, they live, sleep, breathe the business just like you do. It's theirs. They've invested their capital into it. Um, and so between those two things, we realized franchising was probably the best way for us to grow. And the more we dug into it, the more it just, it made sense. Um, yeah, we spent a lot of time doing our due diligence and trying to learn about the industry and putting together our, our franchise disclosure document and things. And, um, you know, and it's, it's a lot of work putting together an operations manual. It's one thing when it's like, well, it's your guy and he comes in the office every day and you're like, all right, did you do this? Did you do that? And you kind of talk through it. But when you hand it off to someone else, you've got to have a manual, a checklist, a process that they really can follow, um, which, which forced a little bit more discipline into how we did things. So 800 inquiries the night you aired, how many yeah. of those were legitimate and what did you end up doing with them? So, so what's interesting is up to that point, my co-founder, uh, Bart, was, was primarily the one that was kind of handling all the sales calls. You know, once it reached a certain point where they were coming into the office to meet with us, then, then we would both be spending a lot of time with them. But Bart always did the initial outreach. And we always made it very personal, right? We would send you, we had a series of emails that would go out. But one of the very first things you got to do was to talk to one of the founders of the company, which was a big investment of our time, but we thought it was important. Well, that was, I think, you know, 800 people to call. And so Bart and I basically just split up the list and we spent the whole weekend calling people. And I, I remember it's funny. It's like, it, it tells you the power of Shark Tank, right? We're just, we're a couple of guys who started a company and, you know, nobody's ever heard of us. And then we go on that show and literally, I remember I called one person. She's like, wait, wait, you were on the show last night. I was like, yeah, that was me. She's like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm talking to the guy that was on the show. Right. And you're just like, <laughs> you know, you have your 15 minutes of fame on the show, but it's funny when you talk to people, cause it's just like their eyes go wide. Right. And so, you know, and, and so we had a lot of fun conversations. There were a lot of people who were just like, well, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. Um, but we actually did end up selling a few of our first franchises out of those leads from the shark tank show. 
right? And so that kind of got our start. It, it didn't, you know, the conversion rate was not real high on the 800, but in franchising, it's amazing. I, I forget the exact stats somebody shared with me, but something like 60% of the businesses that go through all the trouble and expense of creating a franchise disclosure document and going to try to sell it, never sell a single franchise. <laughs> yeah. Never, right? And we'd sold three within about two months and we sold 15 of them within our first year in 12 states. So, you know, we definitely got some momentum coming out of the show. So 2018 was very much about selling and then obviously supporting those franchisees. Yeah. And most of them came in toward the end of the year. So we only had, I'm going to say, well, there was one that was operating in the spring and then most of them started sometime summer or fall. Right. And then, and then actually out of the 15, probably nine of them came on after the season ended and going into the 2019 year. So we had, we had one good summer with a hand and that was part of one of the things we always say is like, we didn't want to kind of outgrow ourselves and get too far ahead. And so it kind of worked out well to have those first ones to go through those growing pains of a franchise system. They were your Guinea pigs. Yeah. You know, I, I hate, I hope they didn't think of it that way, you know, and obviously we, we did everything we can. That's one of the things we told them is like, look, you're going to, Bart and I are on call anytime you need us, right. You're not going to be dealing with junior member of the team. Like anything you need, you call and you're going to talk to us and we've done it. We've, you know, personally, we installed enough of these robots to actually understand how they work and what you're running into out there. So then what's happened over the past few years since then? So in 2019, we, we kind of went into the spring, um, excited for the season. And we had one fairly large franchisee out of the Cleveland area. And he really wanted to invest more. Um, and from our investor standpoint, we had raised a little over $4 million, uh, all from kind of angels and individuals. And the one thing about a franchise business uh, on the plus side, it's an amazing business if you own 100% of it. I mean, it's like pure cash flow, right? They pay money to acquire the territory, and then you get the 6% royalty, whatever it is. And, and frankly, your costs to manage that are pretty low. You have very low headcount, other costs. The problem is, is that out of a, you know, let's say a for a dollar, $1 transaction or $100 transaction, right? Out of every $100, let's say there's a 30% profit margin you get six and the franchisee gets 24, right? And, and that's right because they're investing in the business and all that. But it means for a VC type return, you need to build a massive franchise before you get a VC type return, right? So we need to get to a, you know, a, a 10 million, let's say a $6 million run rate. We had to build a $100 million business. And we were looking at it going, all right, that's probably a, let's call it 10 years would be a pretty typical you know, for a franchise system to get that big. And we had an opportunity to sell the franchise system to one of our largest franchisees. And then we kept some IP related to, a, um, we invented this auto locking door. So one of the challenges of the robotic mowing in the U S is that like, if you live in Plano or Frisco outside of Dallas, 95% of homes have a fenced in backyard and the robots can't open a door. They can't open a gate. Right. So how do they get into the backyard? Well, you could cut a hole in your fence, but then your kids or your dog goes running off into the street. Right. 
And so we invented and patented this door that would open automatically when the door, when the robot came through, think of it like a doggy door just swings open. But then after the robot goes through, it has a little lock and it closes itself. And so we had, we have, uh, we have three patents related to that. And we decided that to participate in the robotic mowing space as it grows, um, we have a much higher margin, much higher return off of that. And so we've just decided to focus our efforts there. And so we ended up selling the franchise system to our largest franchisee and kept this IP related to the door. Now, is this door, is this full time what you're doing right now, or is that just a product that's kind of sitting out there and generating some revenue? Yeah, we actually have a partner. So basically we're licensing that door. And then we also have a group that is producing and selling those doors. And so it's fairly passive from my standpoint. I'm actually, I've launched a new company and I'm primarily focused on that, but our Robin investors are still owners in this um, passive IP company related to that door. And so what are, we, talk, we, we talk often about, um, Tom and I talk often about inside of every business, there's a better business. And this one just kind of announced itself uh, to you guys, it sounds like. Yeah, I think the, the timing was just right for us in that moment, because investing in the franchisees the way they needed to, we were going to have to start putting more capital into that. Even though franchising is a great cash flow business, there's a little bit of work you've got to do. And, and one of the biggest challenges is financing these robots. That was one of our value adds for the franchisees. Because you think if you're going to run a lawn care business, a typical lawn care business to have a hundred customers, well, you got to buy a riding mower and a trailer and some trimmers, but then you can scale up almost infinitely, well, not infinitely, but you can get to maybe 200 customers with that. For us, every new property meant another new robot at $2,000, give or take, right? And so what we realized, our franchisees would have to either figure out how to finance that, or we could figure out how to finance it for them. And that financing piece is a really big deal, like going out and getting capital. And we had to make a decision. Do we want really want to be the company that goes out and, and finds and delivers that financing? Um, and, it's, and it's not your typical equipment financing, right? Because an equipment financing company goes, all right, well, what's the resale value if we had to repossess these things? Well, it's basically zero. There is no resale market for this. <laughs> and, and, and then they, you know, they don't, they don't look at it quite as excitedly at that point. And the interest rates they want to charge some of the things they want to do. You're like, Oh man, this is, this is not where we want to be. Yeah, it's it's a full recourse premium at a premium financing. Yeah. And so you start looking at our method of financing, which had been equity capital through angels and you start going, well, that's, it's actually going to get fairly expensive for us to keep trying to raise money that way. Um, and so it just made a ton of sense for us to sell that part of the business to someone else. And so what are you focused on these days? So I'm, I'm back in the, uh, the startup world and starting another company. Um, I, I picked probably the worst time in history to launch a new business because I launched this thing in March of 2020. And my primary customers are service type businesses and, and especially like local services. So, you know, my first client was a dentist. I'm like, well, at least they'll be okay. Nope. They got shut down during COVID. And, and even when they reopen, they're like, no, nope, we're capacity constrained. We're not trying to grow right now. We're just trying to survive. And my whole focus is around helping companies grow. So, you know, I mentioned with Robin, we got to 10,000 mowing customers our second season. 
Um, what I didn't mention is that most of those customers came through referrals from our existing customers. And, you know, we're a, we're a true green or some of the big uh, lawn companies probably pay 200 to $250 to acquire a customer. We were paying $35 to acquire each customer. Um, and the reason is that we had figured out how to essentially hack the customer referral process. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we figured out is every business has, almost every business has a customer referral program of some sort, right? If you send people my way, I'll give you 25 bucks. Um, maybe I give you a URL or a promo code or something that you can share. And then most of them, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I get a few new customers from it, but it doesn't scale. There's no real volume there. And the reason is that two things. One is you're asking the customer to do too much. Even if you give them a promo code, they're going, all right, great. I like my, uh, I don't know. I like my dentist, right? He's a good guy. does good service. Give me this promo code. Oh, what do I do? Well, do I post this on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, next door? Like what channel do I post? What do I say? I don't really know how to talk about my dentist in a way that'll make other people excited about it. So we figured out is you got to write the content for them let them edit it. They can change it. But at the end of the day, you've got to write the content for them and then make it push button simple. Like literally all you have to do is push a button to share it to Facebook, push a button to share it to LinkedIn. That was the first thing. The second thing we figured out is that the incentives are broken for customers, right? That it's nice for the business because I don't pay anything for referral unless I get a new customer, right? It's very success-based. But the problem as a customer is you go, well, all right, so in order to make the 25 bucks, I've got to post this. Somebody has to click on it. They have to sign up and then they have to pay money for a service. What are the odds of all those things happening and resulting in a benefit to me? Right? And also, do I feel like a business shill just because I'm trying to reward myself in this process? And what we figured out was, you know, just them posting to Facebook or just them posting to Nextdoor is worth something. Right? It's like it's a it's a very very effective ad because it's an endorsement, and so we figured out give them little micro rewards just for posting, or even better, give their favorite charity a donation in exchange for them posting. So what we do is we say literally like, look, you'll still get the twenty five bucks, and you can donate it or keep it at the end, but just for sharing this on LinkedIn, we'll give you um, we'll we'll give your favorite charity three dollars. And Facebook will give $5. And for Nextdoor, we used to pay $20 just to get somebody to post to Nextdoor because we can then track. We know this was Justin who posted Nextdoor and that drove two new customers. And every time somebody posted to Nextdoor, we got two new customers out of it. And so we're like, we're happy to pay 20 bucks to have somebody post to Nextdoor because we're going to get two customers out. $10 per customer, that's pretty good acquisition cost. So anyway, we've, we've taken this idea and said, all right, we've packaged it up into a service that we can integrate for other businesses. And essentially, we do everything for them. We do the outreach to their customers. We host the pages where all the links are, are at, all the clicks. We track all the data. We track the referrals. We even do the payouts to the charities for them. And you're taking a percentage of the payment, I'm assuming? We're, we've kept it super simple with just a flat monthly fee. So for most clients, it's $2.99 a month for up to 4,000 customers in their database. And as you go up from there, it's like three and a half cents for each additional customer per so month. So I, I, I'm a dentist, I've got my practice, and I'm just going to pay you guys $299 to develop and, and manage my entire referral program and 
chances are good that it's going to be a tremendous investment because I'm going to gain far more than $299 worth of new customers each month. Yeah. And, and a dentist is an interesting one because the average lifetime value of a new customer to a dentist is about $2,500. So essentially, if, even if we only delivered one every five months, they would still be getting their money's worth out of it. But you know, what we're doing, what we're doing is turning it into an equal to buying Google ads or buying Facebook ads. Like we're delivering volumes that, that are that or higher for these businesses. Um, and I've got a couple of great quotes from one of our early clients. It's like the lead quality is just so much higher than what I'm getting from any of my other channels because it's coming from an existing customer with an endorsement. And it's somebody who's in their network, either directly their friend on Facebook or at least a neighbor in next door where we have a different level of trust in that person than we do. Yeah. It's funny, the level of trust we have on next door, just because somebody has their name on it and we know they live in the neighborhood versus even like Facebook. Do you have a lot of competitors in this space? Not for what we do. There are, there are lots of companies out there that offer like referral software, right? So refer a friend type of software exists. Some of them have wired up two or three of the channels like Facebook um, I don't know of anyone who's doing next door. I don't know anybody who's doing Instagram the way we're doing. And I don't know of anybody who has figured out this charitable element, right? And which is a really important piece is that incentive process for getting people to, you know, it's on the one hand, I might want that 25 bucks, but I don't know how I feel about myself for wanting that. But I feel really good that, hey, I did something to support a charity. And oh, by the way, I also got 25 bucks at the end. Right. Uh, so we, we call it the, it, it's, it's kind of the greed or good deed motivation. And we combine both. Yeah. You're giving them the opportunity to uh, grab a uh, $25 voucher or be a, uh, a good dude. I think that's brilliant. That's a brilliant idea. Yeah. It's, I mean, it just incentive wise, it's funny psychologically and, and, it's yet to be seen how many people choose to keep the money versus donate the money. The instant rewards are always a donation. Like that part's always a donation, but on the referral, they get a choice. And it'll be interesting to see how many people say, I'm going to put it in my pocket versus donate it. But, but from my standpoint, I don't particularly, I, I would love for it all to go to charity, but as long as they're motivated to help these small business owners, that's enough for me, right? I think we're, we're really helping local business owners primarily. We can serve national brands too. And in fact, we're talking, we have a number of franchisees in our early client base that we hope turn into national deals with their franchisors and all their franchisees. But, you know, our primary focus around these local services. And the quality of the lead has to be higher because the credibility gap has been bridged because this truly is a testimonial. So the value of this lead has to be substantially higher than a, a cold digital spend. Yep. Yep. And, and what's funny is some of them, you know, we live in that digital world. We want to track everything, right? That's one of the great things about the internet is things that, you know, it used to be, what's the expression? I know that half of my advertising spend is wasted, but I don't know which half. Yeah. Right? Well, we're getting closer to where we can actually track those clicks. But what's interesting is when you talk to our clients, they they'll share stories with us like, Oh, well I got, I got three new leads today. Um, and they mentioned seeing us on that neighborhood app, right? It's like, so they didn't click the link. They called him up, but it was based on a post that we had generated through their customers on like a next door. Right. So we know we're even we're delivering a measurable number of leads that's effective, 
But there's also this whole groundswell of other ones coming in because people are like, all right, I'm going to give these guys a call because I see my neighbors using them and they seem to be having a good experience. So how are you spending, you know, the next 12 months? I mean, you're, you're obviously trying to scale and grow this business. Are you just pounding the phones, doing biz dev? What's the growth strategy? I'm, I'm really curious. Yeah. So, so a couple of interesting things. Um, well, one, we launched at a terrible time. And so I've kind of been very slow over the last year. There's a few categories where it makes sense, but a lot of the, most of the categories, like people, just don't want to try something new. Like I have a code ninjas franchisee, like coding for kids, um, which we're doing pretty well, but at the same time, half of the people we're reaching when we're posting on Facebook are probably thinking, I'm not sending my kid into a new indoor environment right now. Right. And so we want to be careful. We don't go too fast right now and, and, you know, create any false negatives out of that. Um, I think it's working pretty well considering, but I also don't want to go too fast right now. Uh, but I think we're fingers crossed for everybody, right? I think we're finally going to be exiting that within the next few months as the vaccine goes out. And so my goal is to have around 40 locations, uh, 40 clients by the end of this year, which should be enough, enough for us to know, is this working the way we think it's working? Have we worked out some of the scalability bugs, right? There's certain things that work really well with one client, and then you have to figure out how to automate certain things. And we should have most of the big ones automated by the end of the year to where next year we can really grow. Um, you know, and I thought I've self-funded this to this point. Um, I've thought about raising money, but at the same time, one of the things that, that I really like about this business relative to my last one is that the margins are more like software margins, right? And so there's two ways you can grow then. You can grow by raising money and spending lots on marketing and sales, or you can fund a more organic level of growth from profit. And at least for now, we're keeping our options open. You know, if, if we see an opportunity to go from 40 to 400 by taking some capital, then we will probably take some capital end of this year, early next year. Um, but if we see it as, hey, we could steadily grow this thing and still have 100%, then we may go down that path. And I think that's, that's one of the things I, I think lesson learned for me. By the end of Robin, by the time we sold it, you know, my percentage ownership was um, getting close to single digits already. <laughs> and, and if you look at, if you look at some of these really successful, like I remember when, um, when box IPO, Aaron Levy has been a super successful entrepreneur, you've got a billion dollar plus company, you know, and I think he owned like two or 3%, which still means 20 or 30 million. <laughs> you know, the guy, I'm not, I'm not crying for him at this point, but at the same time, that's a lot of work to build a billion dollar business. And you walk away with 20 or 30 million of it. It probably would be less, uh, intense to build a 20 or $30 million business and own hundred percent of it. And so there's kind of a, well, where do you aim at in there? Right. And, and I think the one thing for me this time is I'm not, I'm not just going, Oh, uh, funding is a metric, right. The, uh, a vanity metric that I'm going to shoot for. Uh, if we need funds to help us grow faster, then we're going to take the funds to grow faster. If we don't really need it, then I'm not going to go raise it just for the PR buzz of, Oh my gosh, those guys just raised more money. So is it safe to say to make the assumption that the weight of shareholder and stakeholder responsibility kind of sits out there? You're always measuring against that responsibility and that pressure. 
Yeah. And you know, I didn't, I didn't mind that. I actually, in some ways that instills good discipline. If you have good investors, I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about how I communicated with my investors. I used to write them an email on a monthly basis and, you know, I still, I still hear from those investors asking me to talk to their other, their other entrepreneurs that they funded about how we communicated, because I was always very clear, like, here's the stuff that's gone well, here's the stuff that hasn't gone well. And here are the big challenges that we need to think through and solve. We were very transparent about those types of things. And the nice thing about trying to communicate that to others that are not in your business every day is that it forces you to go up a level and really think strategically about what this looks like over the next year to two years. Um, and the discipline of doing that is actually a, I think it's a very useful thing. Now we also ended, get, ended up getting into situations where we had investors who'd invested in different rounds under different terms. And, um, and, and we had one, at one point we had one of the robot manufacturers that invested in us. Right. And, and it's one of those, on the one hand, there are great advantages to those strategic partner type of investments. They also create some conflicts. Right? And, and those conflicts were fairly stressful as we were trying to figure out what to do with the business. Um, and so I'd just be super cautious about raising money from strategic investors. Right? It can be very successful. And sometimes it opens a door that just wouldn't exist without it. So it's a very viable way of doing it, but it does create conflicts. Everybody I've talked to who's taken it has talked about those conflicts because they're not necessarily focused on always on how do we maximize the value of this business. Well, this was, this was a great conversation and really excited to hear where that business goes because I mean, I, I think you're absolutely on to something. And, and at that price point, if you're bringing in referrals, I, I would imagine the retention rate that you'll have from your customers will be very high if they're, you know, if they're getting solid value. Um, what's the name of that company and where can uh, folks learn more about it and contact you if they're interested? Yep. So the, so the name is Exponent, as in we drive exponential growth, but an exponent is also somebody who promotes your services. Uh, and the website is goexponent.com. Awesome. Well, we, we so appreciate you being on here. A uh, ton of great information for all the entrepreneurs listening. And um, I, I think that you're absolutely on to something really great with this new venture. So congratulations. And, and Tom, also, I think if you uh, uh, look up the phrase serial entrepreneur, I think Justin's picture is going to be right <laughs> next to it. Maybe, maybe I, I'd like to just have one that just ride for forever at this point though. You know, that, Be that Bezos guy did pretty well with the one that he ran forever. Yeah, <laughs> All right. Well, take care. Thank you so much, Justin. Yeah. Thank, thank you guys. Man. Appreciate it. All right. We're back. Uh, fun interview covered a lot of ground. Obviously a lot's happened with Justin and with the business since airing on Shark Tank. Yeah, absolutely. What do we learn? Uh, a couple of things. Um, I, I I just like that this dude is a serial entrepreneur. It, it positioned him well in his mindset uh, and his experience for what he had to do with his business, and I'll call it the, uh, the big pivot. Uh, I like the fact that he used uh, the franchise concept as a financing tool. Mm -hmm. uh, brilliant little you know piece uh, of strategy, move on his part. 
so I like that. I like that you know he went into this with a mindset of I'm not afraid to make a bold move or pivot. Um, well, yeah, and the, the the lesson there too is find other people to fund your growth. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it doesn't have to be raising a bunch of money, but it can be, hey, if I had a franchise model or if there was a license fee or if there was some type of a fee that people had to invest to be a part of my business, uh, it can provide you with immediate capital and it can help you grow faster and it can give you partners who have skin in the game. Um, you know, if a franchisee is ponying up money and it doesn't matter whether it's a couple thousand dollars or a couple hundred thousand dollars, the reality is, is this is someone that probably is a bit more entrepreneurial, uh, and, and, and more importantly has skin in the game. So if I hire someone to, uh, run my pizza shop, well, uh, it's a job to them. And if they don't show up, they don't show up. But if somebody gives me a quarter million dollars to franchise my pizza concept, doesn't mean that it's going to be successful, but it means that you've got someone that found a way to save a $250,000, probably wants to own their own business or you know call their own shots, and then they've got some skin in the game. So it's, it's a good model. The other thing that I liked about this dude is that he, uh, he probably listened to Kenny Rogers' song, The Gambler, mm-hmm. once or twice. He knew when to hold him and he knew when to fold him. Tom, he was uh, probably not deeply emotionally attached to the business. Uh, he was very, very willing to sell the franchise system, uh, to focus on something else that uh, captivated his imagination and a, another direction. So I like when people aren't so deeply emotionally involved in something that they could sell it, pivot, move on to something else that may be next, may be better maybe uh, increases their their juices and their passion. When we like entrepreneurs that are deeply passionate about their business, however, if your business is so closely tied to your identity, it can lead to you making poor decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Again, there's pros and cons I've, to it. I've seen it a, a zillion times, and, and when that happens, when a business is so closely tied to your identity and then the business is no more because it folded uh, or you sold it, that person is an empty shell, um, which is not a very positive thing at all. Well, and I'd assume it's no different with uh, a job or a career where, you know, who is Bob Smith? Well, Bob Smith is the CEO of XYZ Company. Well, yeah, but. Tell me about his family. Tell me about his hobbies. Well, there are none. That's that's, what he is. That's (laughs) what he does that isn't what he is. But if what you do becomes who you are, is that a problem? It is a problem. Okay. So like right now, I could walk away from our partnership and I'd be just fine. Oh, I would too. (laughs) I'd be fine if you did that. Do do you like what I tee you up? Yeah. But you, but you can't, and, and I think, but I, but I see entrepreneurs that do that, and you get, I mean, you know, you, you, you live it day and night, and it becomes who you are, and you yeah. can't get away from it, which means you have no balance, which means it lends itself to burnout, and you probably don't make the best decisions all the time. So the big headline here is, uh, typically with entrepreneurs, it's not just a job, it's more than that, and you can be very passionate about it, but don't so be so deeply emotionally tied to it. 
that it consumes you to the extent that if it wasn't there, your life is an empty shell or vessel. Yeah. Anything else? No. That's okay. uh, that's it. I'm I'm done. It's all Co- you. Couple other things. Um, you know, he asked the question, "How can we be like Uber?" And I, I know sometimes that it's overused. Of oh, we're the Amazon for this, or we're the Uber for this, and and people say that it has zero correlation to what they actually do and they just sound like an idiot. Um, However, I do think, you know, there are best practices that you can learn and you can apply. You know, he's looking at the lawn business saying, okay, this is an $80 billion a year business. There's got to be a way to learn some best practices from Uber and other companies that we can apply to this business. And I mean, we're seeing it all the time now where really smart entrepreneurs are saying, okay, what is a big industry that I can disrupt? I just listened to a podcast the other day about somebody that's disrupting the toothbrush industry, okay? There's people that have disrupted the razor industry, you know, and, and, and now there's it's not just Gillette and Mock or whatever that's out there, but it's there's all these other brands and then they're direct to consumer and then they've got subscription services and then they start selling other products. So he looked at an industry and said, it's ripe for disruption, how I can disrupt it. Now, that's on a large scale, right. but I also think you can do that on a smaller scale. I think that there's a lot of things that you and I, if we were so inclined here locally, could disrupt. Hey, What's wrong with all the pool cleaning services out there? Oh, we could make a list and we could create something that's better. So there's a lot of ways to disrupt an industry by taking best practices. It can be global. It can be local. But think about that. Um, Also, uh, don't be in a low margin business. You know, you got to be careful with that. And and we, we see so many entrepreneurs. It's the same story every time. My margin will get better with scale. Now, what usually happens is the opposite. Why? Well, as we get larger, we now need a VP of sales. We now need a chief marketing officer. We now need a VP of operations. Instead of outsourcing our bookkeeping, we now need someone internally to do it, so on and so forth. Yeah, so uh, physical infrastructure and payroll can choke you. Your, your, yeah, your, your margins erode because you have so much infrastructure. It's not just you sitting on the dining room table being all of those things and underpaying yourself for, for yeah. what you're doing. Or not paying yourself. Exactly. <laughs> uh, oh, my margins are great. What did you pay yourself last year? Well, nothing. Okay, well, what if you paid yourself? Well, we wouldn't have made any money. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then the last thing is, and I, I, you know, this doesn't always apply, but I think in a lot of businesses it does apply. Cast a wide net and then pick a niche. And so I like when people say, okay, we're going to try a few different things. We're going to measure them, and then we're going to do what works. So of those eight things we tried, the one thing that works really well, we're going to go after it 100%. But we are going to cast a wide net and then pick a niche because typically the initial thing you try, the first inclination you have is actually a terrible idea. So How you have many? to try eight things. If you try one thing, you might be wrong. If you try eight things and one works. In our, in our growth 10 career together over the last five and a half years, almost six years, how many entrepreneurs have we spoken to that it's that third iteration, it's that yeah. fourth iteration, the click, now I've found my chicken sandwich. Exactly. So it takes longer. So. Uh, great interview. Justin's a, a really, really smart guy. Um, be fun to follow up and see what else he does. You know, uh, reach out to him on LinkedIn. Just a cool person to know. Uh, but great interview. Yep. 
lot of great uh, lessons to be learned for all the entrepreneurs that are listening to this. Let's, or give, away some, let's give away some free stuff. What can we give our listeners? Well, if you are an entrepreneur that's in growth mode and you want to read our book, it's really, really good and it'll help you avoid all the landmines that entrepreneurs also often step on. And if you go to OutsideTheTank.com, you can get the book for free. If you want to listen to the book, it's like a three and a half, four hour uh, audio recording. It's in this feed. So wherever you listen to this podcast, just scroll back uh, a few months and you'll see the book and you can just listen to it like a really, really long podcast. Uh, but it's a great book and I, and I think you'll really enjoy it. We're very proud of it. We've received great feedback on it and it'll help you avoid some just dumb blunders that we see entrepreneurs constantly make. So thanks as always for joining us and we'll see you next week on an all new episode of Outside the Tank.